What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with Decouple Studios' one and only Jesse Freeston. How's it going, buddy? It is going. It is top shelf. It is right where Mama hides the cookies. There we uh, go. It's our, Love our it. first sunny day in weeks here in Montreal, and um, yeah, I'm loving it. Oh, that's great. I've always wanted to go Montreal. I've always wanted to ride on trains in Montreal, which I hear mm. is like a top tier experience. You mean the subway? No, no, no. Like I, I was watching like an Anthony Bourdain thing where he goes to oh. Montreal. Okay. Uh, and there were a bunch of people being like, dude, like the trains in this whole province, like everything around here, got to yeah. do it. It's part of who we are. Interesting. I, like, I wouldn't have put it in my top 10, but sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> But yeah, we are, we do have one of the world's only silent subways, or like mostly silent because it runs on rubber tires. Yeah, uh, well, it's not it's not wild. silent, but it just sounds a lot less cinematic than the New York subway, for example. Damn, or the Chicago just hear L. The, you which just hear like, the engine. Yeah. yeah, which is like screaming past me. I can hear it out the window right now. Um, right. Oh, right, like Blues Brothers style. Yeah, it goes yeah, by, yeah. It goes by so often you won't even notice it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to bring you on here. I've wanted you on here for a while, actually, because I love your videos. I love uh, your radiation video. I love the one you just did on waste and we'll get to that. But the thing that I haven't been able to piece together is where the hell you came from. <laughs> you are a fellow brother to Chris Kiefer of the great white North. That's right. Uh, and you're on the decouple team. Uh, uh -huh. How did that happen? So, yeah, I mean, we say north, but I think I'm actually probably south of you in latitude here in Montreal. Just oh, probably for whatever for whatever it's worth. You know, sometimes we can get a little bit. Our imagination can go a little wild with how far Canada is. You know, <laughs> I, I love like I lived in D.C. for like almost three years and and it was just hilarious sometimes just hearing people like react to me being from Canada. You know, and it's just mm -hmm, like, well, mm -hmm. but, uh -huh. but anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, what how did I where do I come from? Yeah, and uh, how did you end up on the in the D, on the decouple team? Oh yeah, okay. So so Chris and I go way back, like mm. eleven years. We've known each other probably um, back when both of us were definitely politically active in a in a very different way than mm. than we are today. Both in terms of like how we spend our time and what we were fighting for, I would say. But I think there's a there's a dream that links it all together. There's a vision of the future that that links it all together, and it's just the facts changed, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, um, but I, I would say, so, so me personally, um, uh, my, my family's originally from Northern Ontario. I was born in Northern Ontario, like mining and logging country. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm like the only one in my family that grew up in the city. Uh, when I was five, my mom and I moved to the capital to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I would say my, my political vision as I came up was really basically, I arrived at it by secretly down uh, downloading and printing out the lyrics to Rage Against the Machine songs at school because I didn't What's have the internet brother? at home, and yes, <laughs> and then and then just going home listening to them over and listening to the songs over and over again, reading the lyrics, and then going back to school and trying to figure out who Mamiya Abu Jamal was or <laughs> who, or who the Zapatistas were or you know whatever mm -hmm. it was. Um, but I think the the aesthetic of the revolution probably came first. Mm. Um, I was I was. A class clown in school so i was constantly in trouble uh there's multiple classes where i had accumulated detentions and sometimes i would hit a moment where there wasn't enough days left in the school year for me to do all my detentions that i'd accumulated so then it was just like borrowed time you know i could just do it yeah, right yeah, away yeah. just give you a sense like i didn't do well with authority 
Um, and I came up about five years before Ritalin was massively distributed. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I had teachers had to put up with me and had to use discipline instead of drugs to deal with me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, so I think I, I gravitated towards that. Also, I, I, I grew up working a lot of like shitty fast food jobs. I worked for a lot of <laughs> shitty corporations. Uh, I worked at Taco Bell. I worked at our ma- our major grocery store chain, Loblaws, owned by the second richest family in Canada, the Westons. Um, I you know I worked a lot tree planting, a lot of like a lot of like manual jobs where mm-hmm. you're called a team member, but yeah. you know you're not. You know you're not you really go. on the team, you yeah. know. And so yeah, all this created a bit of um, anti-systemic rage uh, in me, uh, and then it, it took its political expression. You know, invasion of Iraq uh anti-globalization movement mm-hmm. and the just this the a kind of like wanting to be a part of something that was calling out the damage greed was doing to mm-hmm. to us to our planet um and and different different things like this and then in canada it often takes this other dimension to it which is a uh, solidarity with indigenous nations yeah so for became, sure a huge thing very, over up there yeah 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 um and i think the u.s could probably use a bit more of it <laughs> to yeah be honest. yeah um, i think the, pro- the problem is is that uh it's confined to uh to different mostly to different states mm-hmm. and that's how it does it like the proportions are way different which right, is like part Oklahoma of is going to be a lot more. New Mexico like, is going to be way uh, more involved with it. Like they have the highest percentage of indigenous people in state compared to anyone else, you know? Right. So I think that that's a huge part of it, but um, yeah, no doubt, huge, mm-hmm. huge issue. Um, and so that's part of your vision, the what you came up in as well. In right. And it comes, it comes with a worldview um, mm-hmm. in some ways, right. Which is, which is, comes from you know like i'm I'm christian adjacent i spent a few years going to church as a kid but that stuff gets passed down to you mm-hmm. um and you know the idea of like we have sinned you know like we i think was like deeply part of my worldview without mm-hmm. me realizing it you know it's like the the fish doesn't sure. know what water is and i think the yeah, water was yeah. an, a, a world of evil and of good and evil and that 500 years ago we started off on this very evil track in the americas mm-hmm. Um, and I still believe that to a large degree, uh, but but it, it came with it a rejection of a of a lot of great things that made life easier for people that that came out of that same came out of that same time frame and geography basically. Mm. Um, and I, I did some throwing out of the baby with the bathwater for a while, and now I'm in the process of um, of of trying to grab the baby before it hits the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and, talk to uh, me about that. So like when I hear that. Like what I'm guessing is that, um, you know, like I came up in the left as well. That's the the vibe I'm getting. Um, mm-hmm. And there's sort of like a rosary of commitments that you rehearse. Yes. And for a long time, uh, and this seems to be changing now, which I think is great um, because I think this is really only works if it's like sort of bipartisan and everybody mm-hmm. gets on board, uh, is that there was an association of energy particularly nuclear and other projects as being manifestations of uh, all of these injustices and engines of those injustices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in calling out all of these negative things that we see, we end up morally condemning what end up being industrial systems that everyone needs. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of what I'm picking up from you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I, 
I think people are right to say we don't need it in the sense that our species survived, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years without it. But I yeah. think people are often tricking themselves. I know I was in thinking that I don't want it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like in thinking that I, that I would prefer a simpler life. And it took me living a few things um, to, to really make me realize that in my own, in my own flesh, you know, um, um yeah like for for example like if i mean i could keep going on with the story actually that kind of no, gets no, to this I actually, point i actually yeah well i would love to hear like what these events were or whatever that yeah sort of yeah change like, your perspective i love that so um you know i ended up i ended up making videos originally um in central america i lived for mm -hmm. a few years in honduras and el salvador um originally following the ideas of paulo freire mm -hmm. uh again with I don't know if that, that name means much to you. But oh I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, sure, yeah. I'm sure a lot I've, of the audience doesn't. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, like, so Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. uh, in very seminal uh, Latin American left wing text, and also in El Salvador, you have the legacies of Bishop Oscar Romero, um, mm -hmm. and who was against sort of this right wing government taking over there that was basically brutalizing the population. He was martyred for it. He's since yeah. been canonized. Um, having grown up, he was also a Jesuit. So having grown up in the Jesuit system, we did That's a whole right. unit on liberation theology, which is sort of the left-wing Catholicism that comes out of the Latin American experience and the Vatican II, uh, yeah. meeting about bringing uh, the kingdom of God to here on earth. Well, letting uh, people read the Bible for themselves yeah, and talk yeah, about exactly. it without being without the guy saying it in Latin and then at the very end throwing in a little Spanish of like, oh yeah, by the way, just go keep making babies and scoring points for the afterlife, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No. So so you're all you're you're in the mix there while you're doing that your whole thing. I was just saying so, that to sort of put put a little meat on the bones for people yeah. that uh, didn't come up in that experience in the same way that we did. Totally. Yeah. So, so for me, it was, it was actually a, a, a very, very rebellious anarchist physics professor at the university of Ottawa. I wasn't in school at the time I was working at the Marriott, uh, in doing, um, they call it being a porter. It's it basically when there's big banquets in the capital in Ottawa and like 300 people come and you have to make sure everybody gets a plate of chicken that they don't eat. Uh, and, <laughs> and like, you know, yeah. like make sure all the tables are right. And everybody's got a pen and a paper that they don't use. And, um, you know, you got to do all that stuff anyways. Uh, it was in that moment that and I had just come out of university and I really didn't like my university experience. I really didn't like the experience of being in school. I like knew myself to be an extremely curious kid mm -hmm. uh, from the from the cradle, but like hated school. And I knew and I just knew there was a problem with that. And there was this professor who was like at war with the University of Ottawa for numerous reasons. But one of the fronts that he had taken up was that he refused to grade his students. Mm. Um, and. And then he became kind of a figure and started just kind of like being an ally of all the different social movements in Ottawa. And he would hand out these like 10 pedagogy of the oppressed books a day. Mm. Um, and so all of us ended up trying to read it. It's a very dense book. Yes, uh, yeah. I don't know how many people make it to the end, but you get the gist of it pretty early on, which is just like, it's a horizontal worldview. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's taking away the hierarchy, taking the power out of the classroom. And I think it works in small groups of extroverts, like to have mm. to be learn to be learning um, through dialogue, um, where everybody's kind of trying out the ideas, and then the professor's going, "Oh yeah, that's really interesting." You know, uh, however, this is not quite true. You know, blah 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 blah. And then 
and then let's go again. And I think uh, extroverts thrive in it and introverts end up going, get not getting much out of it, just hearing a bunch mm. of non-experts blab at them. Um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but it was, it is, it was Ferry's ideas, you know, that, that in the Jesuits took up after Vatican II actually, and had these comunidades de base, they called them. And they would, they would have the farmers together in small groups. Uh, um, usually it wasn't even the priest. It was like a, a like a young university student or whatever that was working with the priest who would sit there and like, help them learn to read through the Bible and and mm-hmm. learn Jesus for themselves. And they figured out Jesus is a pretty badass kind of collectivist um, sure, yeah. and not really, not really the guy that they were being told um, mm. through the, through the, through the priest, through the priest, you know, mm. um, who themselves were living in fear of these right-wing regimes. Uh, anyways, yes. it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy long history, but so I was down there and, and then I started working for Telesur. I got good enough at Spanish that I started, I was an on-camera correspondent for Telesur, which is the, That's which amazing. was like the, the broadcast, the public broadcaster of Latin America. It's since lost a lot of its funding um, and isn't what it used to be. Um, but in its heyday, it was, it was like one of the most watched television channels in Latin America. And, uh, and there I was and, uh, you know, on, on camera and reporting from Honduras and then doing documentaries from there. Um, and then eventually I, I, I came back to Canada and ended up working a lot with Naomi Klein and Avi mm-hmm. Lewis, um, as well as uh, a name that's very big here in Canada, David Suzuki, but probably not as big in the US. But he's probably our he's like our our Carl Sagan, if Carl Sagan, yeah, kind yeah, of like okay. he's the popularizer of science for Canada, like the mm-hmm. number one show science show in Canada for 40 years. He's the host. Um, and he is like is like he has foundations all dedicated to 100% renewable energy dream uh, um and so you know like i did the video to launch his climate emergency unit just 2 years ago um so i was like deeply deeply embedded in that um and and to a certain degree eating from that movement um sure, and yeah. um but at some so point what happened so what happened yeah tell so me what, what happened. happened so here's the story if you want you want the moment where i felt it um i was uh, there, there's the what there's a nation here called the Wet'suwet'en nation mm-hmm. um and they have been uh they are very small in terms of indigenous nation they only have about 3500 members but they occupy their traditional territory is in the most reasonable place to build a pipeline through the Rocky mountains. So Mm -hmm. they have a Valley called the Bulkley Valley. Um, It's in Northern British Columbia. Um, And, and yeah, they, so basically according to Canadian law, according to a Supreme court decision called the Delgamukasteway court case, which is in 1990, which was fought by the Wet'suwet'en and their neighbors, the Gitsan, the Canadian government, if it wants to, build a major project on a, the traditional territory of a nation whose traditional government is still intact, despite mm. hundreds of years of Canadian policy of trying to destroy those traditional governments. If that traditional government managed to survive, um, then the Canadian government has to deal with them if they mm-hmm. want for that to go through. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en are one of the nations who still have their, um, feast ha- their feast hall where they make decisions. Um, mm-hmm. and they've repeatedly said no to pipelines. Uh, they've never yeah. once said yes to any of these pipeline projects. And after the third pipeline project, the government just said, you know what, we're sending in the RCMP, the Canadian FBI, uh, mm-hmm. we're just going to crack heads and push this thing through. Um, and so I was out there working on their media team and filming for a film that's going to be on our national broadcaster later this year, uh, which I'm not, I'm not the director of just a cinematographer. Um, but while we're out there, our relationship with the nation was we would film and edit as we went. Often one of the 
the shameful acts of a documentary filmmaker is to film an event of a social movement or whatever it might be that's really important, that's really significant, um, but then not release the footage until the film comes out two and a half years later. Sure, yeah, And, yeah, and yeah. then everybody hates you because you were this greedy motherfucker who just, you know, like held this footage. So it was a great opportunity for us to to get get out of that mold, which I had never really been in, but um, I've as I came out of video journalism, I am about kind of getting things out. And then if it's mm -hmm. useful for a film two years later, who cares? Like use it again. Yeah. Um, and so the, the model worked well for me, but it's quite innovative. Um, it's quite new in in the documentary film world to be working like that with a nation um, mm -hmm. as uh, what, what, we, what we call settlers here in Canada mm -hmm. as people who are not indigenous. Um, and so, yeah, so, but it was in that process of just spending months and months, 60 kilometers or 42 miles, whatever the hell it is, down a logging road uh, with no cell phone service and um, in the winter, uh, and I got Jardia or beaver fever, uh, which uh, for those who aren't familiar is a parasite. It's kind of a nasty little feature of a healthy ecosystem, which is that it comes mm. from the poop of animals. Uh, that's what we call it beaver fever here. And, uh, and it, <laughs> it, it, um, so, yeah, so it's like part of the movement is to save this river where the salmon spawn and mm -hmm. which they have great fear that, you know, digging under it to put the pipeline through uh, will eventually leak, as we've seen many pipeline leaks mm -hmm. um, and will destroy this river, which is key to their traditional economy and lifestyle and spirituality mm -hmm. that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And so, uh, yeah, so anyways, that, that same river gave me Jardia because it's so healthy. Um, and and this, and then, but then it was it was many days until I could get a ride back into town. Um, and uh, and so I was just diarrhea, diarrhea, uh, no energy, and just kind of like wasting away in the woods. Um, and I finally got a ride into town and uh, the doctor took one look at my stool sample and said, where are you getting your water? And I was like, from the river. She's like, are you at the camps? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you have Jardia. <laughs> so, and, uh, and I was like, I knew it. And uh, she gave me antibiotics. And within 24 hours, I was back to normal. But I'd lost 18 pounds. I think it was 17 or 18 pounds. Um, I don't know if you can tell from the framing, but like, I'm, I, I can't lose much more than yeah, that. Yeah, you don't have a lot to lose, bud. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... I, uh, you know, I really felt like I lost a lot of strength and I lost all this stuff. And, and, and I don't know, you know, Chris uh, at decouple is a doctor and yeah. I talked to him and I was like, would I have died if I didn't get antibiotics? And he was like, probably not. I'm like, the internet says I might've. And he's like, yeah, you probably would have been fine. But, <laughs> but it still gave me that feeling of like, you know, nature can kill you. Um, yeah. and, and there's these antibiotics that were sitting in this clinic and, somebody had to have an, or a lot of people had to have enough free time and resources to discover those antibiotics and then to mass produce them and then to make sure they're spread out all over the world um, so that people don't die or at least get severely hindered by, you know, things like this. Um, that, it, that it made me, so basically I, I'd lost all this weight, but I'd gained a lot of perspective. Um, right. So basically it sounds like, you know, you, uh, in that experience developed quite quickly a respect for the built world yeah that you hadn't actually had before right right am i hearing that right that's that's exactly right i hadn't put it in the terms of the, the built world but definitely 
yes like like civilization um like being able to have specifications and Mm -hmm. but like i'm i'm like very open into what that civilization can look like and i i don't think we're living in the best of all i'm not a technological determinist yeah yeah Yeah. i'm not a technological determinist or whatever i i don't think i think our ideas are important and we can use these technologies and like mix them with our ideas and make something a lot better and so that's Mm -hmm. anyways that might get us into something else but um but yeah that that was a big thing and then in french we call it a moment déclencheur. it's like it's like the the before and after moment um and uh and i think um yeah and then chris was just waiting for me basically so uh, once you once you had that revelation, once yeah. you had that moment of clarity, you were ready to hear the nuclear message from Chris, basically. Well, yeah, there was another there's another aspect to it, which is that I was often trying to charge my batteries with solar panels in the winter in Canada. Uh, oh um, yeah, and that didn't go well. No, not very well <laughs> at all. So, so like yeah, realizing that like I'm I'm here as part of a movement to fight against a pipeline to bring fossil fuels primarily to Asia um mm-hmm. and and here i am firing up a generator to charge a battery like this big yeah um after like eight hours of the solar panel trying its best and failing miserably um yeah. and then and then just to kind of like in my head do okay this is just a battery for a camera and then, right. you know, and then just just you know without without the math just sort of just yeah just in, using my imagination to imagine powering the basics of a civil of mm-hmm. a dignified life for billions of people on the planet and mm-hmm. then just like oh my god oh my god it's not gonna work like you know yeah, yeah, and yeah. then and then chris was waiting for me and was like you know uh all the all you know uh, all the naomi klein books that you read that that got you into this in the first place go look at the footnotes they're all going to be this one guy mark c jacobson here's the critique of you know what he puts out and go through that and then a big moment was he showed me the electricity map and he was like what's the model for your 100 renewable thing i'm like i guess germany we don't talk about it much but i guess it's germany and then he pulled it up and was like you see the like orange country here yeah. yeah that's that's germany and it and the sun's shining right now um and uh and it, oh and right next to it here's france and it's green and oh yeah and here's yeah. ontario and we're green remember smog days when you were growing up yeah i hate smog days yeah we used to not be able to go outside and play you know and he's like yeah we don't have those anymore did you notice i'm like oh my god you're right we don't have those anymore yeah it's because we switched from cold and nuclear oh shit why didn't nobody tell me about this you know um <laughs> it was so but it i mean I'm, I'm condensing it i was very resistant at first it took it took him like a few months to really get me get me into it but it's, it's helpful to have a persuasive friend around and and when they're six foot nine the persuasion just gets magnified so yeah right yeah, yeah. no i think that that's sort of a, that's a that's a very i love that story it's very beautiful and like now you create these very informative like mini docs mm. for decouple studios on youtube and i like that you're sort of taking on the like big button items for mm. people that are likely as resistant as you were yeah right like i really see that in the content you put out so i believe you have one on radiation right and yeah. where you talk about the treasures under smog days um and out of that like through the in ontario from cold and nuclear which is great by the way everybody that'll be in the show notes you can check that out um and your most recent one is on waste so let me ask you like i have a theory for why you picked these and it's because they're big button items that i think as i just said uh, for resistant people why did you decide to make one on radiation and then one on waste 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 for me was like the I, I, 
as I've been going along, I've been trying to maintain contact with the me of two years ago, right? Sure. Like, yeah. Um, vital. And, and I've been, I've realized the degree to which, like when you go all in on this stuff, um, especially if you're someone like me who doesn't have kids or anything and, ha- and does have time to put into it, you can very quickly, I call it the Chris effect. You can, ve- <laughs> <laughs> you can like very quickly get to a, a depth of information, which renders it like, I, it's not Chris. Chris is actually pretty good at speaking to the public, uh, mm-hmm. which is why he's done such a great job as the president of Canadians for nuclear energy and in advocating and, and stuff like this. But I think there was a value of staying even a le- like trying, trying to stay. Like I, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is when I'm around nuclear advocates and they start talking about like their favorite reactors and why I, I like pretend I have to leave. I like, I find it, mm-hmm. you know, it's like in the sense of like, Oh I'm, yeah. I'm trying, you have left I'm, the public behind as yeah, soon yeah, as that like, conversation exactly, opens up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. And, I, and I, and I feel like I, like, I feel this desire to go there. Like, you know what I mean? To like, mm-hmm. to get to know the thing better and better and better. But then I'm like, no, 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 that's not where my strengths can serve people. Like I'm actually not a scientist or an engineer. You know what I mean? Like I'm a storyteller and, and I want to stay at the level of the story. And like, I I feel like I've got enough of a grasp now of like why nuclear. Um, Mm -hmm. And while I keep learning more, um, I, I do want to maintain a little bit. I still want to maintain a connection with, with the me that, that didn't know anything. And like, and so I, in terms of picking the episodes, um, waste from the beginning was the first one I wanted to do, but it just took so long to be able, I knew I needed to film next to it. I like in my head, I can't do this video without me standing next to it. Yeah. Um, because otherwise people are like, are just going to be like, yeah, whatever, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, it, it, uh, it, there's so, it's so thick, the wall that you have to yeah. go through. Um, and so I needed to get to the other side of the, the wall of the, of the building that has the waste in it. Like, uh, cause here in Canada, they're in, they're inside, um, they're inside warehouses. I know, I know in the U S they're most of, they're mostly outside, but these things mm-hmm. are really hard to get to, except in, in some places in Europe where like, you just have to call them up and they, they tell you to come on in and yeah. Right. And, you know, they're bring, like, yeah, bring, sure. Come by your camera. Yeah. 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 You just turn up. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I, I actually didn't know that. I just, I, so we'd been like banging our head trying to get into the ones here in, in Canada um and uh and so that it finally happened so it's at like episode 14 okay we're good let's go let's mm-hmm. go in there and film and uh and it's really funny you know I'm in there filming and and when you do these tours you get like seven very well-paid executives kind of following you around sure, like, yeah. <laughs> like as, you're, yeah, yeah. as you're on this tour and and uh and 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 i was you know i'd set up like i had a rough idea what i wanted to say and i was using the word waste and you know they, they interrupt me and like you know with all respect we don't use that word and you know and it's like i know but i made a video like i was hanging out with you guys too much and i made a video about my tour of bruce power earlier and i just kept saying used fuel used fuel used fuel as i'm like over over top of the fuel and i actually showed this some really smart friends of mine some of which you even like work in renewable energy and stuff like this and they watch the video they're like that's really great i just i it's still for me it's the waste and i was like no no that was i was standing on top of the waste like that glowing blue stuff was the waste and and they go oh why didn't you say so you know and like yeah and so totally i i uh i already made that mistake once and so uh, and these guys were trying to correct me, like, please don't use the word. And I was like, no, no you don't. 
Yeah. You know, you, you have know. to, you have to meet people where they're at. I think that's yeah. something that the industry, that's one thing that I really appreciated about your, uh, about your waste video is that it felt like I, like I wish it had been made when I first started getting into nuclear, mm. you know, that's sort of the joy of being an advocate right now is that you're in early. Yeah. So like you can make the content that would have helped you out way sooner, Exactly. Yeah. you know, like you can do that favor to your past self. Um, right. And like, to me, what I think is so important about that is that when the industry plays language games, like I get why there's a technical reason they say like spent fuel or used fuel or whatever they want to say right. uh, for that. Like there's a technical reason And it is more accurate. It's just and it is scientifically more accurate. More accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. But when they commit to that for public comms rather than like mm. internal discussions yeah. or even with, you know, those who know like experts or whatever – is they surrender the discursive ground to their opponents. Yeah. Like by making a technical correction, right? By being more right, they think they are being more successful. Yeah. And that is not true. Yeah, that's exactly. That's I exactly think that's right. why storytelling is so needed. That's exactly right. And and it's, it's like, but you do, I am better positioned to do that. Yes. You know, than the industry. And, uh, and that's why, I you know, have been so like stringent on not accepting any industry money, you know, yeah. uh, for this project. And I know, other, I know, I know there's other projects out there that, that don't have that line, but like, I still do see myself as a journalist and a filmmaker and a documentary filmmaker. Sure. And I need to have that. I need to have that integrity for myself. Um, and mm -hmm. also because there's probably, there's probably, there's definitely going to be a me that's doing stuff that's not nuclear in the future. And, yeah, no, uh, yeah. It can't be yeah. your whole life. Yeah. Exactly. It won't pay all the bills. Um, right. Unless I true. go into it, but like as we said earlier, I'm not an engineer or a scientist. You know what I mean? That's yeah. not that's not my. Well, that's specialty. not your whole shtick. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think that that's important, right? So let me ask you this, right? So you, mm. I'm sure, as I have, you have held on to friends from your life from a mere two years ago. Almost all who, of them. yeah, who have all yeah. of the commitments that you used to have in this domain. Mm -hmm. how has this changed your relationship with them and their relationship with you? If at all, I would say, no, no. I mean, I get, I get, uh, sometimes I get reports like that. I've been, that I became a topic of conversation at a dinner table or something sure, like this. Sure, sure. And, uh, I, 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 I like my spirituality is primarily comes from stand up comedy. And sure. so I, I try to turn every conflict, every taboo, every everything into humor mm -hmm. and so that's how i've treated this subject like you know with with my friends is i just i've just come into it laughing and left laughing like you know like isn't this crazy look where i am you yeah know, love that up the that's pandemic great. Great you know the, the pandemic locked me up at home with a bunch of ipcc reports and like <laughs> and books and stuff like this and now i'm pro-nuclear you know who thunk it yeah. um and uh yeah i try to just walk lately like that with it and um and it seems to be working out and yeah, I, has and that I been do, persuasive for them i think so i mean i have i you know i don't have the other version of the multiverse to compare it to where i go mm. in more heavy-handed um you know sure. to see how that would work out um but i would say it has been i, I i've definitely there's even some people who i'm waiting for their public face to 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 align with their private face convictions um, yeah 
yeah. which yeah which could could be big turning points actually there's I, i'm not going to name them because of the friendship of that we have but there are some people i'm telling there's some lurkers out there who are going to shock the world at least around my world um yeah. fairly soon when i eventually get them off the cliff yeah yeah no that's hugely important so let me pivot a little like you know before we were sort of talking about we've talked about the importance of storytelling we talked about like uh, the vision of how things could be. What to you is the story of nuclear? Like, why should we have it? Beyond all the technical stuff that you and I know, mm -hmm. right? What's powerful about it to you? What's that story? Like what? Like the most romantic story I could tell about nuclear? Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Okay. Go for it. And I want to and how it fits into your vision of the future. Yeah. Though. So climate change fits into a broader pollution thing right mm -hmm. so it's like burning stuff sends sends a bunch of things into the air mm -hmm. that we'd be better off if they weren't there mm -hmm. um and there's there's this magical other process that arthur eddington discovered the sun was being fed off of like i love this moment where like Arthur Eddington starts showing up. Do you know who Arthur Eddington was? No, He's, I don't. Uh, Fill me in okay. on all this. Ar okay, okay, here we go. Arthur Eddington. I'm like this close to getting an Arthur Eddington tattoo. It could happen any day. Um, th this guy was uh, a, a Quaker and mm -hmm. the leading astronomer in uh, England. Uh, around the time of the first world war so as a quaker he's an internationalist um and a pacifist mm -hmm. so he is against the the first world war um which at the time made him immediately an exile of the academic and yeah. circles yeah that's box that office prison of. at the time yeah, yeah exactly and that was also happening to another internationalist pacifist in germany Albert Einstein, mm -hmm. uh, who was also against the war, who had actually always refused German citizenship because he was against na nationalism. And I think as a Jew, felt something in the air um, mm -hmm. and um, and didn't want to be a part of anything nationalist. Sure. And so they, uh, Eddington stumbles upon Einstein's ideas about gravity and they start in totally illegal letter exchange in the middle mm. of the war um where eddington basically einstein calls eddington like the first person that ever understood the my th my theory of uh, general relativity wow uh, and it was all through like cursive and typewriter letters you know to each other illegal letters and um and eddington eventually comes out like in the middle of the war and says guys i think Isaac Newton, arguably the most famous Brit to ever have lived and definitely <laughs> the patron saint of the academic departments that he was in. Mm. I think he might've been wrong about gravity. Mm. And there's this official enemy of ours uh, that I've been writing to illegally. Uh, and uh, and he's Jewish too. And anyways, uh, you know, like, it's just like across, just like for the time, like their timing couldn't have been worse or like maybe mm -hmm. couldn't have been better in some weird ways to force them together. But Eddington took a vote, went to manage to raise enough money to go to Sao Tome off the coast of Africa to get the picture of the 1919 solar eclipse that proved general relativity for the first time. He got Einstein to predict for him because basically in order to see the gravity well of the sun, you mm -hmm. need to block the sun 
and then see where the if the if the position of the stars uh is where they should be given einstein's gravity well which would warp the sun's oh, rays yeah, uh, yeah. versus newtonian gravity which would which would shift the light a bit but not to the same degree and so einstein told him exactly where each star was going to be at the moment of the solar eclipse eddington takes the photo goes home looks at it einstein's right newton's wrong end of story um wow. and and then takes a while he becomes like the popularizer in english of einstein's ideas and then a little while later he uses e equals mc squared which comes from special relativity which had which had been known for a while but he uses this to prove eddington again to prove that the sun is not a combustion event it is not mm. burning it is a it, the if it was burning the sun could only last for like i think his numbers were like 19,000 years given its mass uh like that's the max for a combustion reaction of that mass and so if darwin's right about evolution and if the earth has been here for millions of years or billions mm -hmm. of years then uh, this is not burning and uh in fact i did the math and it turns out e equals mc squared explains perfectly what's going on up there uh with the sun and why it could last for billions of years and so like i just love this moment where eddington shows up and he actually tells he actually at the world power conference in 1930 on stage tells the like the Rockefellers and the Morgans and all this stuff to like, you know, all you guys that are making world, the world's largest sums ever amassed shipping all these fossil fuels around the world to be burned. Like, mm -hmm. you know, start looking for a new job because we figured out what the sun's doing and it's just a matter of time before we bring it to earth. And at the time, the idea was, it wasn't just like eat the rich or whatever. It was like coal and, and mm -hmm. it's like actually choking our cities. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we, we know people are dying from this, uh, like uh, two decades later, you'd have the London, um, fog or whatever they called it. The, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. like three days where London got choked by no, because it had no wind and a bunch of big weather event that made the, the coal soot just sit in the air. Mm -hmm. Anyways, like that was their motivation. And that's even without climate change. I mean, like there was some people that knew about climate change at that point, but they didn't, mm -hmm. they weren't talking about it. Um, sure. so even without that, there was a motivation to be like, let's go to something way cooler mm -hmm. and and less destructive and less polluting than combustion um and now when you throw in climate change it's just like game set match you know yeah so to you um part of the narrative for nuclear is that it's almost like a levering up of human potential and what we could get versus what we risk at staying in our current energy paradigm yeah i think it's I, at this point, I'm I'm actually I'm I'm actually more on the doomer side of things. Probably, I'm I'm more on like mm -hmm. it's our only chance to avoid catastrophe, um, right. uh, given our numbers and given what people consider a dignified life and what I consider a dignified life, and mm -hmm. like what what people are actually going to do when energy becomes scarce and what what mm -hmm. we're what we're likely to model out from that, um, and even regardless of if you're okay with the pollution and the and the, the mm -hmm. climate effects of burning fossil fuels, like they are running out. Um, I mm -hmm. do believe that. And, um, or, or they will run out at some point. And, you know, why run the experiment? Why, why not start the transition now? Right. So it's, it's getting ahead of getting ahead of it. And then sort of the other question I have is like, what's, um, you know, there's keeping the lights on, there's all of that, like, but when people want something, it's never just to satisfy a need, 
Mm-hmm. Right. There's always something else. Like what to you is like the aesthetic dimension of the hope for nuclear, given all the doomerism that you uh, have in your worldview. Right. Like to me, it's not yeah. just like, well, if we just have these power plants, then it's like, fine. There's always something else there. There's like a supplementary desire that's motivating. What's that for you? To be honest, like my world, like nuclear is not the center of my politics or my world. I, I assume it, it's it, not. It really, so that's sort it, of why yeah, I'm asking. It, like it, it, it really is a solution to a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it has this beautiful science history behind it, which makes me go, Ooh, wow, cool. Um, and so, so yeah, like I, I, I really, I actually really don't think that humans do like, I, I've just been reading Isaac Asimov's, uh, the naked sun. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's from 19, it's weirdly, um, future looking at like people who never see each other it definitely feels like it's taking this planet solaria uh it's an earth detective who goes to this planet solaria where these humans have been there for thousands of years hmm. and there's only twenty thousand of them on an earth-sized planet and they all have these massive estates and they and they they only view each other they never see each other um because hmm. seeing is gross and like you shouldn't do that um and and uh anyways it's it's hell like when i look at it it's like it's this weird <laughs> it's this weird hell where uh they're all living to be 350 years old and they all have like a hundreds of robots that do their bidding and limitless energy and everything is technically wonderful but in the process of solving all the problems and getting to like maximizing and optimizing through technology they've arrived at a version of hell that I would mm-hmm. rather live 12 years on earth. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. Like, yeah. you know, than, put than up with 350 that. years like that, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think, and I, and I know it from my own life because my mom brought us up a social class in my lifetime. Like mm-hmm. um, she, you know, got, got herself a really good job when I was young. And then, and then like took her a while to like shift gears and actually spending the money she was making. But like, uh, but then, you know, by the time I'm like graduating high school, you know, we like, we're going on ski trips and stuff. And Mm -hmm. um, whereas like when I was young, we, we like, like, like really, like I grew up eating like ramen noodles and craft dinner, like a lot of the time, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. um, it was a big shift. And, um, and I, and at some point I had this conversation with her where she, you know, she was telling me stories about like, you know, uh, oh fuck, I hope her friends aren't listening to this, but like some, some of her friends that she's met as she moved up this ladder, like just don't have the qualities, uh, that like her friends had when she was further down the ladder. Like, um, mm-hmm. and there's something about us being dependent on each other that creates community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think we can see this in all the, um, the um what you call it um data that we have on happiness uh surveys mm-hmm. right i think it's called like the turkey the turkey corner or some of that like like oh, like uh, your as your material well-being goes up or your gdp per capita or whatever mm-hmm. goes up happiness goes up until you read it until, until it like plateaus at a certain point and there's yeah, like you get this, diminishing returns yeah yeah you get you really do get diminishing returns um and my experience might suggest that at some point you actually start to go down like mm. um and and so i i think there's 
and I don't know how to do this. This this could get into a, a bigger a bigger thing actually about about Darwin and stuff like that. I don't know how deep mm-hmm. you want to go into this. Um, but hey, look, we're we're just talking. I'm interested in this broader okay. view of humanity, human happiness that you have, because yeah. I think I'll just put my cards on the table. You know, I talk to people from across the political spectrum mm-hmm. here intentionally, yeah. right? Like this is like a this is like a neutral zone. Right. where I can talk to righties, I can talk to lefties, I can talk to centrists. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because what's important to me is that I'm actually talking to Colin McClellan tomorrow from Digital Wildcatters. That episode will come out after this one. Um, and yeah. we're going to talk about telling better energy stories. Okay. And so like part of this is figuring out what we value and mm-hmm. how energy fits into that and what we see is important about being human. Right, Because the technical conversations are important, but mostly nuclear advocates listen to this show and we all have those in our back pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What don't we have? Right. You know, okay. and it's these conversations. All right. You ready for this one? So the project yeah, that was- Yeah, lay it on me, on, brother. Okay. The project I had to abandon because somebody else made the film before I finished mine and they <laughs> did a very, very different job of it, but it was done in such a way that it made it so like there's no way I could get grants- uh, um, to finish mine now that this had been done. Uh, and, and it's, it's basically around the scientist who did the experiment called rat park and his mm. name is Bruce Alexander. And this is considered one of the most controversial experiments ever in the history of studying addiction. Mm. Um, and basically what Bruce found was that when he did the experiment, the idea was that you are either genetically predisposed or not to being an addict And then if you get exposed to something that is addictive and you have those genes, you're fucked Um, Mm -hmm. and you're going to be an addict now. And Bruce, from his own experience, was like, I just working as a psychologist, working with uh, addicts was just like, "Ah, that story doesn't check out with what I've what I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And like all the people he knew that like recreationally used heroin and cocaine and all of these things that were considered the most addictive substances. And so he did an experiment called Rat Park because they one of the main experiments that was being used to prove this idea that these drugs hijack your brain uh, mm-hmm. was with rats. And, um, you know, we use rats for scientific experiments because they're they're social animals like us. They have a lot in common with us in terms of their organization. They're the most similar to us of animals that we don't care about torturing. So right. like you can get closer to us going into primates, but they have opposable thumbs sometimes. Like, you know, it's like they start yeah, to look yeah. a little weirder, bit too much like weirder. us. Yeah, 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 yeah. It gets And we start to feel like we're doing harm, like we're doing like evil things. So we don't care about the rats give a rat's ass um you know <laughs> even even in our language so they do it on rats and so they show these rats where they isolate these rats in cages uh and then they give them a choice between water which has morphine or heroin which is basically the same thing um mm-hmm. and and water that doesn't and as soon as the rat tries the water with morphine in it it just like can't get enough and then it basically ods and dies right and they have the video of this happening and they speed it up and then you, you see the dead rat and it's like well there you go that's that's heroin mm-hmm. um and uh and so you know bruce was like all right let's actually put this to the test and he he did the rats in cages and he did rats in something he called rat park so he had like 40 rats in cages and 40 rats uh all from the same litter and 40 rats mm-hmm. uh living in community in this park where they had things to play with and most importantly they could have sex and and get into little fights and right they had and, options live, yeah, they, they, they had a social life. Um, and then the rats in Rat Park just 
don't get addicted. Like, so that, yeah, and all the rats have the choice between regular water and water with morphine. And the water with morphine in order to cover for the bitterness of the drug actually has some sugar in it. So like, and the rats would still, like they try with sugar without sugar, all this stuff. And the rats in rat park would just like sometimes use the morphine, some of them more than others, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but only like one out of 40 got addicted. And the rats mm-hmm. in the cages, it's like 39 out of 40 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was like, environment's playing a role here. Yeah. Envi- you know, in whether or not people are in that dig. So then he's tries to get funding to do this on humans and he tries a few different things, but it turns <laughs> out it's really hard to get an ethics board to agree for you to like isolate humans for like for yeah, months sure. or and whatever. Feed them you know? <laughs> illicit substances. Yeah. I can see yeah, how yeah, that exactly. might Exactly. So at some pass, point he's yeah. like, fuck, I'm never going to be able to, to do this study. And he's like, okay, what's the closest thing I have to a lab? It's history. And so mm. he just spends the next 35 years. I fucking kid you not just like using all his free time. I don't know all of it, a lot of his free time to go into like libraries and read the greatest writers of all time, looking to references for anything that might look like addiction. Mm-hmm. And he finds it everywhere and in places you never expect. And he finds it in Plato and he finds it in Aquinas and he finds it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then, and then he starts to build a theory based on like what these guys were observing. Um, and, and I think it's based primarily around something that he and I, through dialogue, started to call the Darwinian tension, mm. which is, you know, Darwin, we always talk about origin of the species as being Darwin's greatest work. And it was the one that had the most revolutionary impact. But mm-hmm. he doesn't talk about humans in evolution of the in the origin of the species. He only has one line. I mean, it's a hot topic because it was going to like the religious, <laughs> the mostly religious world was going to like really have a backlash. So sure. he says, uh this this theory will undoubtedly have repercussions for our own species in the future. Something like this yeah. is like the only line. He's humans. vague posting. Yeah, totally. But then he spends the next like 11 years really focusing on humans. And he comes out with something called the descent of man, which mm-hmm. I highly suggest people reading. It is a fully eugenicist reading of humans, right? Like he's yeah, ad- basically oh, yeah. advocating for eugenics, but like other than that chapter, uh it's i think like really useful uh and so one of the things he talks about is the main difference between us and other species in terms of evolution is that we have another evolutionary force which is group evolution which is happening in con- like actually going mm-hmm. against the the survival of the fittest aspect so mm-hmm. the individual side survival of the fittest side is i want it, it's it's psychological impact is in order to get the best mate or to procreate or to get my genes into the future as far as possible mm-hmm. I want to be seen as the smartest, the strongest, the most beautiful, the fastest, whatever, you know, like that in the community, I want to be seen as those things. Right. But we also evolved in groups to a greater degree than any other species. And we rely on the group for our survival in a way that probably goes beyond almost any other species with like some extent like ants and stuff that are harder to study. And so uh, the result of that is that the groups that actually have a lot of characteristics that run counter to those out compete the groups that are a bunch of individuals looking out for themselves. So Mm -hmm. the groups in which everybody feels like they're a part of the group, they have a social solidarity outperform Mm -hmm. the other groups if everything else is the same Uh, groups where, where there's higher trust amongst each other. So that has created a tension, a psychological tension in the way our brains have evolved that we, on one hand, want to be seen as uniquely smart, beautiful, strong, fast, whatever, mm-hmm. so that we stand out from the group. But we also have a deep psychological need to be seen as part of the group. 
at the same time. And if you're looking for an evolutionary explanation for culture, mm-hmm. it is that cultural spaces and cultural places and cultural activities are our opportunity to do both at the same time. So mm-hmm. if you if you are in Cuba and you like see people dancing salsa in a room, you're like, oh, these are Cubans dancing salsa. They have this group activity that they do that makes them different from other groups that gives mm-hmm. them a group identity and they all know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you watch closely, you'll see like, oh, you know, that lady like does her spin like while looking to the left and like throws mm-hmm. out her right elbow. And like, you know, th- this guy, you know, is like never making eye contact. And so he's showing off that he can do the moves without ever looking at his partner. Like you see how uh, as individuals, they are trying to stand out. Right. While right. Doing they have the their own flair, their their own emphasis on it. Yeah. Right. And these cultures evolve often, often very quickly and often over long, long, long periods. Right. And so where does addiction come from? Addiction comes from, according to Bruce, and I'm almost a full believer in this. I Mm -hmm. I need, I would need to test it a bit more, but like comes from something called dislocation when Mm -hmm. you're missing one, one of those two things. So when you're not getting either the feeling of individuality or that ability to express your own freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, your individuality, or you're missing that group solidarity, that, that feeling of being Mm -hmm. part of a group and, and his reading is that like, basically, if you're looking at a story of why, addi- so a lot of cultures don't have words for addiction. They didn't see much of it. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, and depression and some of these, some of these things that, that lead. So um, if you go into the, the biochemical thing is like, when you don't have those things, you start to get negative self thoughts. And then whatever you find that successfully pushes out the negative self thoughts because your your brain understands those negative self thoughts to be a threat. Maybe you'll eat less. Maybe you'll commit suicide. Whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that whatever pushes those thoughts out is now what you're going to keep doing. Mm-hmm. So it might be a drug. It might be porno. It might be listening it to podcasts. Could be a whole In bunch. Of, case, could, could be a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Exactly. It could be anything that successfully pushes out. I know by my own habits that like when I'm feeling low, when I'm like the few times I would say I was depressed, I get obsessed with like podcasts and stuff. I just flood my brain with knowledge so that mm. I don't give myself an opportunity to think those negative thoughts. Mm. I just like flood, 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 flood. Um, and so and so different people manifest in different ways. And my reading of like the last few hundred years is that we've had two ideologies that have been obsessed with resolving our material needs Mm-hmm. And and they've been super successful in certain ways at transforming the world and they've wiped out cultures. So both mm-hmm. communism and capitalism, like one of them is so focused on elevating the individual and mm-hmm. couldn't give a shit about the group, mm-hmm. capitalism. And the other one is obsessed with the group and like needs to destroy the individual, communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the result is a bunch of dislocated people with negative self-thoughts. Mm-hmm. so if we're, if we're putting this all together like yeah and we see well i'm just trying to reflect back to you what i'm yeah, hearing that was a lot right yeah. <laughs> no, no no it was a lot but it was interesting yeah. so mm-hmm. what, what i like about this is that um you know it doesn't seem to fit neatly into any particular category so i think it'll be provocative for listeners mm-hmm. um and get their get their juices flowing which is ultimately what i want for the show yeah. so if we're going to put this all together with sort of like um nuclear and what we want for tomorrow what we Mm -hmm. want for the future 
would I be correct in saying what I'm hearing from you is that we are deprived of certain cultural needs and some of us, those yeah. some of us. Yeah. yeah. And those cultural needs absolutely won't be met. Um, if we don't solve some of the technical challenges ahead of us, what we need is a bridge to the future in which that can happen. And that is part of the nuclear narrative to you, right? Is that if we experience the scarcities and repercussions that you've talked about, mm. in no way will that improve the lot of those who are suffering from dislocation. In fact, it might breed more and deeper dislocations. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like I... I don't want to make it sound like dislocation is the worst thing that can happen to a human. Like I think no, getting killed not. is I... the worst thing that can happen to a human. So like for me, you know, for me, it's like, yeah, like you might not feel dislocated while you're at war because you've got this like clear mission and you're part mm -hmm. of a troop and you've got your own role and like mm -hmm. actually you're right. Your so we, and so we don't want to say it's, like, it's so yeah. we don't want to say like non-dislocation is a, a complete good in and right. of itself. Right. Right. right so right. we don't want to say that either. I don't yeah, think yeah, yeah. that's what you were saying. Um, no, no, no. Yeah. But it's good that we have that. I guess for me, what what um what it what it means in terms of my nuclear advocacy is like, I'm not advocating that we just we just focus all our attention on solving our material needs mm -hmm. through economic development, technological progress, all this stuff. Like like we are a much more complex being than that. Mm -hmm. Like as humans, you know, like our psychology is way more complicated than that, and that that does not resolve and like people will not respond to that necessarily in the way you might uh, like map out, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, if you try to go all game theory, thinking about sure. humans like that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so anyways, I, I, I think that like, for me, that what that, that whole diatribe, what, what it reinforces for me is just that let's not confuse resolving material needs with like human happiness. You know, mm. they're not, they're not, yeah, they, yeah. they're related, but they're not the same thing. They're not identical. No, I think that's yeah. a great point. And I think that that's one that um, when we confront these things like society-wide dislocation, like the anxiety and depression and resentment, I think, that mm. seem to be so pervasive, I think it would do us better, not just as advocates, but as people to understand that there's no real one weird trick for this yeah. where you just build the right things and it all works out. Right. Right. Um, and I, and I love the emphasis that we are more than just uh, happiness machines that are sated through uh, technocratic management and uh, consuming various goods. So right. that to me is something that I think we should all hold in our heads and I've been trying to think, uh, and I just want to leave this here, about what the full human picture means in terms of our energy advocacy. How do we see human society and what we need and how we mm -hmm. can be and what's important? I think there'll be a lot of different answers that come out of that, but mm -hmm. until we can come up with a good story about why in a true story about why it's important that we achieve these material things because they're about something bigger than that. 
uh, will struggle to succeed in convincing people and bringing people on. So, Jesse, thank you for coming on and blowing Can I just throw one thing about that? Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Like, it just actually, as you were saying that, it actually came to me like, where do I see nuclear in this whole story? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, it's all about getting to a global equality of opportunity um, mm-hmm. in large ways. Like, like the amount of human potential that's lost right now by not having everybody with access to healthcare, education, um, electricity, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff like the, like, and, and I don't mean that just in terms of further technological projects, but like art and just yeah, the like, whole create, human like just creation, the whole human thing and solving, our, well, solving our problems and creating beauty on earth. Like mm-hmm. I, I just, I don't want to be part of an environmental movement or a, or a ecological movement that is suffocating that by saying like, no, 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 we can't make any more energy or like we have to stop. Anyways, mm, so that, I love that, so I need to like, I need to see everybody with access to electricity and enough of it to get to like a good level of decent living so that they can create and have free time and all that stuff. Um, and I need everybody to have that. And nuclear is the only way I see that possible right now. I love that. That's perfect. That's a great yeah. place to end. That's a beautiful vision. I very much co-sign that. And um, everybody, I hope that uh, things came up that are provocative in a helpful way. Um, and uh, I highly recommend you check out Jesse's work, which will again be in the show notes. And I'm sure we'll find occasion to talk again. I would very much like that, whether we do it on record or not, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. Thanks equally. for coming on. And yeah, if anybody anybody has a critique they want to send me or put in the comments on, on Emmett's page or whatever, like I'm thinking out loud right now. Like, like I'm not totally. preaching. We're I'm in literally, flux here. Yeah, yeah we're, in, we're flux in flux and here. can be swayed. So yeah, yeah. but you no, got to bring it. Like I don't sway <laughs> easily. So, so yeah. make sure you got footnotes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> everyone, Uh, Bear that in mind. Stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.